I think the the advice that I would give for folks looking to transition is, you know, be ready to jump in, roll up your sleeves and learn. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, welcome to episode 58. Today we're talking about the intersection of business and government in the context of the industrial world, and we're going to be chatting with Natalie Birdwell, who's a sales engineer turned startup executive with plenty of more in between, and uh, coincidentally, the two of us have been connected by default for a very long time, or we've known who one another are, but uh, we'll get into the story about that here a little later as the episode gets rolling. But just so you know what to expect from today's episode, because Natalie has such a um, let's say an unconventional career. She's done a lot of different things. We kind of take it chronologically. We talk about her career in sales, her career in government, as well as what she's doing now more in the industrial startup world. So a lot of cool ground to cover along with the lessons that she's picked up along the way. There are a lot of resources in this episode. So if you want to check that out, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 58 when this episode is done or even before the episode's done to access any resource mentioned in this episode. That's the show notes page, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 58. While we're talking about that, if you enjoy conversations like this, if you are enjoying the Manufacturing Happy Hour podcast, well, consider joining our Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community over on LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community, and that's where you can meet almost 500 manufacturing leaders that are constantly talking about industry best practices, things they're learning and networking and building their businesses together. It's a great group. Again, that's over on LinkedIn and you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And with that, let's not spend too much time on this intro today. I want to get you introduced to Natalie right after we do a little bit of reminiscing. All right. Well, Natalie, this is exciting because I know we've had a conversation before, but I had heard your name for like four years when I was first working in uh, in the Houston, Texas Rockwell sales office because you basically had left right when I was getting there at like the start of the mm-hmm. 2010s. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. yes. Right, right about mid 2010. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was funny because I think it was uh, actually Beth Parkinson who had been on the show back in episode seven. Actually, we did like a digital transformation roundtable. Um, she had mentioned your name. I'm like, Natalie, 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 where have I heard of her before? And it's like, oh, yeah, I call on all of her accounts in the Houston sales <laughs> office now. So that was uh, that was pretty funny. So serendipitous. It's cool that we're uh, getting a chance to chat. But before we dive into the questions, I do want to make sure I give you a proper introduction. So. Our guest today has had an exciting career across the industrial world in both the public and private sector. After starting her career as a sales engineer, she's gone on to get an MBA from UNC, worked with the North Carolina Department of Environmental and Natural Resources, and is now the COO of a cutting-edge industrial IoT analytics and optimization company called Industrial 
just with the N, no I, dot I-O. Natalie Birdwell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And uh, yeah, we joke, we we don't buy vowels. We'll buy one later um, <laughs> as we grow. So. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. So yes, uh, we'll, we'll get to industrial.io here in the next question. But first, as you know, in, in manufacturing happy hour fashion, I have to ask you, if we were having this conversation in person, where would be we be doing that somewhere and say you're your residents of the Raleigh-Durham area? That is a great question. And um, it's a tough one because there are quite a few good options in this area, Chris. So um, we actually live in the area called Midtown. And so uh, close, we're about five miles north of downtown. There's some local um, hangouts that are pretty good. One is called Linwood Brewing. Um, great outside uh area and another one uh actually some friends of ours own and it's called mordecai beverage company uh but if we were close to our office in the heart of downtown um there are a couple of little spots one's patio beers and the other one is the raleigh beer garden which has a wide range of um beverages on every floor that hail from all over the world so um lots of great options to choose from well, let's say we're since it's summer. Let's say we're hanging out at the Raleigh Beer Garden. That that sounds like the the taste of the day. So, uh, you know, if we were having this conversation over a beverage, like I said, and someone asked you, you know, Natalie, what is it that Industrial.io does? How do you describe that to them if you're in a you know a casual setting at a beer garden? Sure. Um, great question, Chris. And I hope I get that question all the time at a casual setting at a beer garden. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is most fun to discuss business over beer. Uh, so Industrial IO, you know, we have always existed from the beginning to help companies, particularly industrial organizations, optimize their business. Um, and we do that through a real-time industrial intelligence platform. Um, and so the, the cornerstone that we've started out is really a focus on energy and taking it not from just energy management across an enterprise, but really transforming it and, and colliding energy with operations. And so companies can make intelligent decisions, energy intelligent decisions, operationally intelligent decisions, um, find new insights and and um, be ultimately more competitive in their own business. Hmm. Can can I ask why energy was the area that you kind of decided to double down on early on? I'm sure there are other applications yeah. and things can expand, but I'm curious why that one. Uh, no, great question. So, um, you know, from our perspective, you can really relate everything to some sort of unit of energy. You know, whether that is um, water, a kilowatt, um, gas, or human energy too, right? Um, the human energy for employees, for manufacturing, um, to even write development code, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that was that was kind of our core um, being, and and so being able to then say, all right, let's start with being able to take everything down to some sort of unit of measurement um, mm -hmm. that makes it r real and. Um, you can measure it and you can verify it and you can really start to um, make a powerful ROI from it. 
Makes a lot of sense. The measurability key factor. And I'm excited to get more into industrial.io as we get further into the conversation. But the reality is you've had a what I would consider a fascinating career journey. Like you've kind of, it, 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 I mean, it certainly hasn't been linear in that you've gotten to do a lot of different mm-hmm. things, like a lot of progression along the way. No, that no doubt. That's not what I meant by not linear, but you've gotten to do sales. Like I said, you've been in the public sector, startups, MBA, like you name it. So I'd love to kind of walk through some of those stages. And the first question is, as much out of nostalgia as it is curiosity, because <laughs> we, like I said in the the intro, we both started our careers as sales engineers in, in the Houston, Texas, Rockwell Automation Sales Office. So I'm curious, is there a lesson that you <laughs> learned during that time that has taken, that you've taken with you through the rest of your career? Sure. No, I... I... I, um, you know, have very much enjoyed the the start of my career at Rockwell. Um, fabulous sales training program. Landing in Houston was um, an incredible experience um, because it was really a great introduction into uh, global business, even mm-hmm. still being based in uh, the lower 48 of the U.S. So um, lots of, of great stories there and, and a really um, fabulous team and collaborative team and, and also a fabulous distributor down there. Um, and so with all that being said, I, I think the, the marker and even um, you know this before you get your final assignment, you go on like a little you know, three months stint in the in the um, sales training program. And um, this was resonated there. And also, um, once I was in Houston, is that um, success is a, a, a team sport mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day. And so, um, you know, whether that's collaborating with uh, cross functionally with folks across marketing, uh, pricing, feedback to products and, and business units, um, uh, working really closely with the distributors, um, you know, and working closely with with customers. I mean, all of that is um, a, a multi-person t- team-driven thing um, to to make those successful. And so um, that has always been something that has stuck with me really hard um, after those first experiences. And, um, I will say has 100% of the time rang true. Yeah. <laughs> <ever since then. laughs> I, I love that you talk about having that global perspective, even when you're based in the lower, lower 48 for anyone listening that is not as familiar with Houston. I'm sure everyone knows it's a giant energy hub at the end of the day, but I mean, so much of the work that gets done there impacts areas that are outside Mm -hmm. of Houston and outside of Texas in general. So, and I love that you bring it back by saying uh, success is a team sport. I'm definitely quoting you on that uh, because (laughs) that's, I mean, the reality is to get anything done with such a complex sales process Mm -hmm. in that area where you are touching different groups of people, different roles, different regions. I mean, great, great lessons to pull from that. And uh, I, I certainly had an exciting time when I was down there. Well, everything you said was was ringing true. Um, but I know we, we both kind of went different directions after our time there. You know, I stuck with the sales engineering thing for, the, uh, for a while, the sales thing in general. Um, but you went and got an MBA not too long <laughs> after that, after being in the commercial world. So why did you leave the commercial world to get an MBA? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, It was probably a little bit of a head scratcher to some folks at the time, uh, because I, in in terms of going 
full time to get my MBA. I was a little bit more on the higher experience side. So I mm-hmm. had more than kind of that two to four year sweet spot. But um, one of the things that I had really noticed and um, across my career that, you know, to that point was that I was really interested in helping um, customers and that they had far more complex problems to solve than mm-hmm. the suite that, you know, um, I could I could help solve mm-hmm. at that time. And I was really interested in that total business aspect. And so I had done a, a small stint at a, at a smaller company um, to get that kind of juxtaposition of, you know, really large Fortune 500 to, you know, very small privately held company. And that drove my interest even more of, you know, after seeing uh, mergers and acquisitions and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just general struggles within companies and looking at how they can grow. And so I wanted to be able to expand uh, my skill set and my tool set and understanding of what you know I could bring to the table, but also um, the network of folks that I can do that with as well. And so, um, hence uh, my trek to UNC to become mm-hmm. a Tar Heel uh, commenced at that point. Well, I, I have to ask that, and this is similar to the the what did you learn at Rockwell? What's a lesson you've taken to? I mean, because no doubt plenty of lessons, I'm sure. But what's one of the top lessons or one of the ones that's most front of mind that's aided you in your career since then, now that you've been through a number of different iterations of roles after your MBA? Sure. Um, yeah, I think the the big thing is there's people present in all of those roles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's in a sales engineer position with Rockwell, whether you're, um, you know, working on a team in your MBA, um, doing maybe a project for an outside company while you're in your MBA, um, leading a um, you know a club or a, a team within that time, and then you know post MBA, whether that's um, no matter the role, you know public sector, private sector, startup, large company. That um, at the end of the day, the the people are um, key. It kind of goes back to that that teamwork piece, right? And so mm-hmm. um, being able to um, build trust, build relationships, and then have you know leadership capabilities that span a lot of different types of situations and environments um, are are fundamental um, because you you can sit in front of a computer all day, but at the end of the day, it's still you know how how teams can come together to operate. The human element and the team element have been a big theme in this conversation so far. So I have to ask what it was like when, uh, let's say, you joined another team, so to speak, when you jumped over to the public sector after yeah. you were done with your MBA. Because that, in in at least from my research, that was one of the things that I found most interesting, that you'd done all these things in the commercial world, in the private sector with multiple companies, and then... You joined the North Carolina Department of Environmental <laughs> and Natural Resources. So tell me how that came about. Um, that is a good story. So I, uh, full disclosure, I never thought I would go work in the public <laughs> sector. Um, I had not even considered it. And, uh, you know, was was nearing the end of my um, MBA stint. And 
looking for the next next opportunity. And um, some interesting things had come up and presented themselves and were offers on the table to go do consulting and go back into sales. And, um, and I kind of went, uh, you know, I, I really want to be able to take this knowledge and apply it now, mm-hmm. right? And take that expanded skill set and apply it. And so um, I was approached and said, "Hey, have you ever thought about working in the in the public sector?" So at the time in North Carolina, there had just been a new governor elected, mm-hmm. and um, so they were actively a new cabinet had been filled, and they were actively looking for uh, folks to join. Um, there and had a conversation with one of the cabinet secretaries and said, Hey, we would really like to have you as, as, you know, part of our, our group here. Um, and I mean, full, he was very honest. He's like, I am not going to be able to pay you an undergrad wage, probably much less than an MBA wage. But, mm-hmm. um, he said, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity here to, do public service and to um, also, you know, get some good experience across uh, multiple organizations and to, um, you know, impact things in your backyard of the the state that you live in and be able to um, understand more about the intersection of business and government. And so it sounded quite intriguing. And um, I think a lot of people thought I was crazy at the time and I uh, took the leap and, and went down that path. So I have to ask, you mentioned the intersection of business and government. And I agree. That sounds really cool as well. What's one of the things that most surprised you about the role early on when, mm. when you joined? Yeah. So uh, it was probably the degree that there is a lot of intersection of business and government, right? Um, Coming from a sales and marketing background, you're very, you know, forward facing to the customer. But um, as far as what a company has to address on a day-to-day basis from from a regulatory perspective, from um, an operating perspective, um, that's very different you know, how, how that is impacted by government or even influenced by government and regulations and policies um, and just, you know, the trajectory of how business grows as well. And so I was at a really interesting point of, um, we had five uh, statewide divisions and um, uh, three of them actually were funded by state appropriations and they had um, their own revenue. So they were um, revenue generating facilities mm-hmm. and they had a 501c3 partnership. And so mm-hmm. there were um, you know, three types of revenue generating activities with very different stakeholders uh, to navigate. And uh, you know, kind of your, your, your typical ideas of how to operate business um, applied to some of them, but not all of it, right? And so we were really operating three businesses in um, a little bit different framework and in a different um, environment than what you would typically see uh, in the private sector. Got it. So just recap on the, what those three businesses are. This is as much for me as as much as I want the audience to hear what what those three are. So they've got those in mind. 
Oh, sure. So we had, um, I say we had the fun stuff. So we had a state run zoo here. Okay. Um, a, there are three aquariums at the beautiful North Carolina coast okay. that were uh, part of there. So the aquarium division. And then um, we also had um, the Museum of Natural Sciences. Um, and so they did not have um, specific revenue. It is um, yeah. open to all all folks, but they did have a 501c3 as well in state appropriations. I can get where that the complexity is there when these are revenue generating generating organizations, but they also have the 5013c. That does sound like uh, an interesting uh, interesting waters to navigate. No pun intended on the the aquarium uh, examples that you were just mentioning. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, as 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 I I want to explore one of your next roles within this, and and we're gonna have to go back to the Raleigh Beer Garden for this question because okay. you were the executive director of the North Carolina Coal Ash Management Commission. And yeah. I've looked at it. I've done my research. I don't think I can do it justice by trying to describe <laughs> what it is and the challenge you were solving. So if you could say we're, we're having that beverage at the beer garden, how do you describe what that was and what you were doing succinctly over, over a nice lager in the middle of summer? Oh, a lager in the middle of summer. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> I'm getting really specific with my beer garden examples I, today. <laughs> I mean, they have lots of options. I mean, you could have a lager and the next question we could go to something else if you want. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the North Carolina Colash Management Commission was interesting. It was the first of its kind created in the country. It um, happened after... There was an incident with Duke Energy, which is the largest utility in, in the U.S., um, and mm -hmm. there was coal ash, which is um, the result of burning coal in a coal-fired power plant um, that had gone into a river that um, crossed from Virginia into North Carolina. And so when that incident happened, um, the legislature in uh, North Carolina decided to stand up the Coal Ash Management Commission to look at the problem from a holistic standpoint. And so we were tasked with working with the regulatory agency, the Department of Environment and Natural Resources, with Duke Energy, with the um, uh, environmental groups that are in the state, uh, with the um, and to look at things from the perspective of the taxpayers within the state and mm -hmm. how um, any actions could possibly impact um, from the North Carolina public utilities perspective. And so um, it was different because there had not ever been a commission like that had, that had been kind of created to sit um, amongst all of those um, elements and really take a holistic approach at solutions um, that were good, you know, um, good solutions across every one of those stakeholders. Understood. Yeah. This, and, and as you continue to talk, I'm starting to personally feel the other things you need to be considerate about when you're working in the public sector, when you're talking about taxpayer considerations in these <laughs> areas to manage through this issue. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. All right. I have a special guest to take care of this ad for me. So keep listening. 
This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Steamchain.io. Steamchain is the machine-as-a-service company, meaning they equip end-users and equipment builders with the technology that allows them to pay or get paid based on machine performance and production outcomes. That's right, Steamchain is flipping the centuries-old capital procurement process on its head. Now, if you listen to this show regularly, you know I think machine-as-a-service is one of the best solutions in manufacturing right now. But don't take it from me. Hear it from their customers. Let's hear what Robex's president, Craig Francisco, has to say about their Flex Machine-as-a-Service program. You can invest in automation without having to wait your turn for your capital project to be approved. The big benefit for our customers, it takes a lot of pressure off of them to have the system running perfectly when we leave. Typically, once an integrator is done with the installation and startup, then it's it's now the responsibility of the customer to make sure it's humming along and working. With the Flex program, they know that we're there every step of the way. You know, we're just a phone call away 24-7. If we can't do it over the phone, we'll be on site to support them. To learn more, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain or tune in to episode 45 featuring Robex, where Craig talks all about machine as a service. And now, back to today's episode. What were the, describe some of the challenges you faced in that, because this sounds like something really, uh, not only complex, but also maybe uncomfortable at times to manage <laughs> through. How, how did how did you, you know, as someone that's been through a number of different experiences, how did you manage through that? Sure. Um, it, it, you know, it was, I think you hit the nail on the head of saying it was complex and it was challenging. And um, to, to start off with, it's emotional, right? There mm-hmm. are um, there were events that happened in in folks' backyards that were scary, mm-hmm. um, and that were were dangerous. And so, trying to navigate that along with um, there was a lot of um, different political views of mm-hmm. that, um, and you know, you had a publicly traded entity here mm-hmm. at the at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Um, who also serves a public function of delivering um, electricity throughout, you know, the state. Uh, and, and so there were, uh, there was a, absolutely a lot of um, complexity. I think some of the the challenges that arose, I mean, you know, personally to stand that up, um, we were delayed a little bit. And so mm-hmm. um we didn't have any infrastructure. And so when I took over the executive director position, we were five months behind and legislation didn't change, which means our timeline didn't change. And so we still had to deliver um, all of the studies and case reports in the timeline that was that was mandated. Um, and there still needed to, to be a lot of relationship building that was done. And, you know, every day it was a headline here in mm-hmm. North Carolina. And so there was, you know, obviously a lot of media interest um, in anything that we would say could end mm-hmm. up, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the front page of the paper or the six o'clock news at night as well. Um, and, and a lot of people were interested. It affected um, people all across the state um, that lived close to um, these uh, you know, generation facilities, but it, it really could impact everyone across the state in terms of rates, right? Um, and what would eventually happen with the North Carolina public utilities um, and, and, and rate payers. And so 
Um, an additional challenge, and that was probably our biggest challenge, was that at the time a lawsuit was then mm -hmm. um, leveraged between the North Carolina legislature and the governor. Um, and we were um, what I would call the political football. We were the center um, mm. of that um, lawsuit of a separation of powers. And so we were navigating that while trying to do our work as well. With all this going on, when <laughs> you have the media attention, when you have different, when, like this is a political situation, how do you stay focused and continue to do the, continue to take the actions that you feel are the right thing to do? Yeah, that's, uh, it's tough because you hear a you hear a lot of, of things in the media, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of pressure. And I think, you know, in that time, uh, same focus on our objective to find really optimal solutions that were, um, that took into consideration all of those holistic things that mm -hmm. really kept us focused because our mission was to not be political, right? That's why we were created. Um, our mission was to really, truly serve on behalf of um, the folks that live in North Carolina. Uh, and so that, you know, keeping that as our main focus always kind of brought us back to the center of truth and, and um, you know, being able to um, hear people out and, and, you know, hear the different perspectives and being able to pull those together and then you know, focus on what are some optimal outcomes that we could we could um, drive from this, and and what are you know exploring things that maybe hadn't been looked at before too, um, because we had the capability to do that, and and previously, um, you know, other stakeholders and entities were really narrowly focused on on particular particular items or solutions. As 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 this role wrapped up, tell me, you know, what it was like when when this role was coming to an end, when you were moving on to the next thing. Sure. So um, I would like to say that it was, um, you, you know, this smooth sailboat transition. But sure. As with a lot of things, um, it it kind of came to an end really quickly and abruptly, mm -hmm. um, and so. I was really proud of the work that we were doing. Um, like I said, you know, gathering data had had put in, you know, brought in some great engineering organizations and and different consultants that um, we were, you know, driving and, and having some great stakeholder meetings and making some really good progress. So um, the the long story short is that that lawsuit I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it went all the way up to the North Carolina Supreme Court and a ruling came out. And about a week later after the ruling, I got a phone call um, from the governor's office. And the interpretation of the ruling was that um, the commission no longer existed and was not viable. And so um, we were asked to, to shut down that commission at that point in time. And so I made sure that, you know, the folks that were a part of um, our team and, and that we had hired were all in good standing. Um, and I was offered uh, to stay at the state. And I was actually offered to stay at the state from both sides of the aisle, which I was very, um, I, I felt like that 
meant that we had done what we were supposed to do, right? Um, and at that point, it was becoming more and more of a political focus. And, uh, and so I decided that, you know, what was going to be asked of me in any of those future um, positions really wasn't going to 100% align with um, my integrity or the people, you know, the reason sure. that I had had taken that position in the first place. And so um, at that point in time, I said, you know what, I think it's time for me to go back to the private sector. And, and mm -hmm. I felt really good about the public service I had done. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is great. So my follow up question to this is how does the work you're doing at industrial.io align with your values right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, maybe another day we'll write a book someday about public service <laughs> and, and all of the crazy things that can sure. happen. Sure. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> With it. I'm sure that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when when I came to Industrial IO, I've, it kind of it came back to the root of I've really always been passionate about helping businesses grow and i've found industrial companies fascinating from the beginning you know i don't know how you could ever work at rockwell and not love what was the show how things are made or how, you it's, know, made. how, yeah. how it's made right i mean um you probably wouldn't last long in the in you know doing business in an industrial environment if you didn't like to know how things were made yeah. so um i i, I think if if you kind of look back and you take a step back and, and um, it's the pulse of our lives, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's everything from affecting um, the toilet paper shortage that we've had across, mm -hmm. you know, in the, mm -hmm. the last year and a half to um, making the beers that we are sipping at the Raleigh beer garden right now. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and everything in between. And so I, you know, that was, a really core motivator for me and and back to my values of of you know helping you know those companies become more optimized more efficient and and in inherently that serves the good of of everyone right um mm -hmm. it, it serves the good of stakeholders it serves the good um of shareholders for those companies mm -hmm. right um and it can make better products um for consumers and so all of those things align really well together i love it and and this is i, I at least i get the sense that industrial.io is a new soiree for you as well and that this is more of a startup than any other role that you've been in before. Is that correct in saying? Yes, I, I would say, yeah, definitely in the in the private sector for sure. What what advice would you give someone? And you have a very unique perspective because you went from public sector to this is, I, I think you had another role in between, but this was very quickly after that back into your, uh, the private sector world. What advice would you give to someone that's jumping to, let's say a smaller company that's still getting rounds of funding and yeah. other startup -y activities like that. Yeah, no, I, um, oddly enough, I, <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of questions and, and, and people want to ask that question a lot. Um, and you know, it's, um, 
it's different. I think you got to have a, an appreciation if you've been, if you've always been in a large company, right? There's been a lot of resources at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you don't have an appreciation of how those resources and, and things are developed, or at least an interest in that, um, it could be a little bit of a rude awakening, right? Because it's all hands on deck in a, in a smaller um, company and in a, in a startup. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shifts, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ups and downs and you feel them across the company. Um, and it, whereas, you know, a larger company you may have had an earnings call and they say, okay, well, the stock price went up today and, you know, they roll out a, a new initiative, um, right? You're living, breathing the, the heartbeat of that every day, which to me is exciting. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's also exciting that, we can, um, you know, influence what we what we bring to market. Um, some of the challenges are that you're still finding out those things. You know, there's not this deep, um, the you know, a, a deep team of just product market researchers that are you know, feeding feeding you that data every day. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think the the advice that I would give for folks looking to transition is, you know, be ready to jump in, roll up your sleeves and learn, but it can be the fastest and most exciting learning curve that you could have. Um, and be prepared to, to ride a lot of those waves that you go through, um, because it's not for the faint of heart, but it can be very rewarding at the same time. And you're the chief operating officer now. Like, was was operations a direction you saw yourself going at some point, like evolving into, or is is this kind of a startupy example where it's like, hey, this is this is the role I needed to step up into, even if that wasn't necessarily what I'd done in my career before. Sure. I was, it's both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was definitely an interest on my part in operations and um, looking across all aspects of, of the company, right? From um, recruiting people to um, retention, to growing the company, to the financial aspect, to, um, you know, P&Ls, to development, um, product, uh, sales, marketing, all of those aspects. Uh, but also, you're right, there is a, a level of, you know, I remember um, several years ago and and saying, okay, now we got to change our payroll system. And now you know, there, there's yeah. definitely a, a need aspect of you, you fill all of those, those roles and you pick up the balls that, that need to be carried forward. And so um, it's, it's an evolutionary process. And as the company has grown and, you know, um, we've grown a little bit more from bootstrap to now that we closed our series A of funding, mm-hmm. um, some opportunities open up now to, to be able to focus efforts. And, um, and so people aren't having to wear as many, um, you know, just pick up those balls and, and run with them mm-hmm. hats. Well, I, I feel like a funding round is always an interesting time to do a, a podcast because it clearly means there are some big things on the horizon and, and a lot of people that are bought into the vision. What are you personally most excited about at Industrial IO right now? Yeah, well, um, obviously the funding is great. Um, we were very fortunate to, to close the Series A funding 
um, a few months ago and have some um, fantastic investors in NG and in uh, clean energy ventures who co-led the round for us. And, uh, you know, we, we're looking forward to um, being able to take our, our vision to the next level and, you know, increase our development and our products and you know, hit the accelerator on uh, sales and marketing and, and get out there. I think I'll, I'll tie this back a little bit, you know, personally for me in, in going back to that intersection of business and government um, with the energy focus of, of industrial and, and the things that, you know, we can, can see in the forefront for us to solve for industrial customers is, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of trajectory around. So many years ago, you, you talked about like the triple bottom line, and now you're seeing a lot of companies doing GHG reporting and, you know, being able to convert that to, to carbon tracking. And, and so um, those worlds are coming together at a really rapid pace. And in Europe, you're seeing more requirements, you know, around GHG for companies. Um, and, and so as those things really start to continue to converge, I think that's, we are at that epicenter in the center of being able to enable our customers mm -hmm. Um, to tackle those in a way that can improve their operations and improve their bottom line and also um, in, improve their, um, you know, their carbon footprint as well. And that those things aren't mutually exclusive and that, um, you know, that intersection of business and government can be a good thing. Love that. I've loved everywhere we've gone with this conversation today. You know, as as we're starting to wrap up the discussion, this is always interesting with with someone that's done so many different things in their career like yourself. But <laughs> is there a question you wish I would have asked or something we didn't go into as much that that you wanted uh, to speak to a little bit more? Gosh. Um, well, Chris, I think you've done a great job. I do have <laughs> kind of a, an interesting history and past, but um, I maybe the question is what have I learned from all of the different roles combined? I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm yeah. trajecting, I, you know, across business and government. And, and I would say I have an appreciation, right. For um, probably more walks of life and every, um, you know, challenges that not only businesses face, but I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm probably a better citizen as well of hmm. understanding, you know, um, how government works and, um, you know, election cycles and, and, and things like that. And, and, you know, how things kind of go on and some of the challenges behind the scenes, um, with government. And I think it's been really powerful to be able to apply those and, and sort of navigate, um, that with growing a business as well. So, um, the other question was, you didn't ask me my favorite kind of Everest. That's what I was about to ask. Actually, I did have Come a follow-up question because I was I was going to say I threw out the logger comment, and the way you answered that, you're like, I think Natalie was going to order a different beer than what I just suggested. <laughs> so, what is your favorite beer? Favorite style of beer? <laughs> oh well, I um, so uh, no, I, I think loggers are great. Um, I used to so the the short time I spent in Milwaukee, it was great. There was, mm -hmm. I mean, that was kind of the center of 
years before the the microbrewery trend really started. Right. I'm dating myself a little bit there. Um, but uh, I, unfortunately, my body does not like the gluten aspect of beer again. So I have become mm. more of a cider connoisseur. But before that, ah, I really okay. loved, um, I mean, if you've ever had Guinness in the UK, it's yeah. it's so wonderful. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 just different. Something's different about it once they ship it across the ocean. But um, I've always traditionally liked kind of the dark, smooth beers. But now I I like a good Austin cider. There's a couple of local mm-hmm. ones that are pretty pretty good and smooth as well. So how about yourself? Oh gosh. Uh, it's, it's seasonal. That's, that's my answer as someone that, uh, I'm from the Midwest originally grew up in St. Louis and, uh, I've, I've described St. Louis as a spot that's about as perfectly seasonal as it gets. Like, yeah, no season really overstays its welcome. So, you know, that lager on a hot, humid day or that, let's say that amber beer on a cool, crisp fall afternoon to that stout or winter warmer uh, when the snow's yeah. coming down. If I compare a beer with the moment, that's my favorite for sure. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, well, great. Well, from ciders to government to energy to industrial.io, Natalie, we've covered a ton of ground today. And I just want to say thank you for being on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Thanks for having me, Chris. It was a great time. And everyone listening, stay innovative, stay thirsty. Catch you again next time. Hey, hey, thanks so much for listening. Also, thank you to Natalie and the folks over industrial.io for making this episode happen. A lot of fun, good catching up with someone that I had known of for over a decade, but finally got a chance to talk to pretty recently. We mentioned a handful of resources in this episode, namely a lot of Raleigh area breweries. So if you want to learn more about Linwood Brewing Company, Mordecai Beverage Co., Raleigh Beer Garden that we were referencing throughout the episode, make sure to head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 58. There you can also find a link to industrial.io. I know it's not that hard, but you got to remember industrial.io is industrial but without the i at the start so it starts with the n but anyway again show notes page you can find all of that super easily as we wrap up if you have enjoyed this episode or if you're enjoying the manufacturing happy hour podcast in general and you haven't had a chance to jump over to itunes to leave us a five-star rating and review well today might be a great day to start doing that it's a very quick process all you need to do you can write just a couple sentences a few sentences a short paragraph whatever it is and hit that five-star button and you can leave that rating and review within, let's say, just a couple of minutes. You can do that by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you to the Apple Podcasts app if you have an iPhone or on your desktop if you are accessing it there as well. Would love to hear those ratings and reviews, and I'll even give a shout-out to you and read it on the air in an upcoming episode. One last thank you to our sponsor for today, Steam Chain. Steam Chain is the machine-as-a-service company, and they are changing the way that equipment manufacturers and end-users collaborate. You can pay for performance with their model, which is pretty cool. You don't have to worry about CapEx dollars. You don't have to take the risk when investing in new technology. Steam Chain de-risks those type of investments in new things for your manufacturing facility that can yield incredible results. So, 
Don't hesitate to reach out to Steam Chain, whether you're an end user or an OEM. You can find out more about them during episode five, where we interviewed their CEO, Michael Kromicky, or just head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain to learn more. And with that, thanks again for listening today. We'll catch you back here with another great interview next week. So sit tight. We'll be back next Tuesday. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.